Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. Mauritania, one of Africa's largest, yet least talked about countries, holds a dark secret. Slavery. While slavery in various forms continues to exist around the world, in Mauritania it's on a massive scale, having been woven into the very fabric of society. In fact, the loathsome practice was only criminalised 15 years ago. But whereas the Emancipation Proclamation and subsequent events in the United States led to the visible liberation of millions of people. The new law in Mauritania had no such effect. Indeed, the government quickly moved on from criminalising the trade to claiming there were no slaves in the country. Those suggesting otherwise risked harassment and arrest, while the practitioners of the trade were left largely undisturbed. But the situation is starting to improve, in part because of the work of organisations such as Anti-Slavery International, an entity founded in 1837 and designed to bring an end to the Atlantic slave trade. Almost 200 years later, despite much success, the group's work is not done, as Emma Kane, Programme Quality and Impact Manager, explained to me. Despite the success of the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade, we've been fighting slavery, which has been ongoing around the world in different forms ever since. We are fighting for freedom from slavery for for everyone, everywhere, always. It's about making sure that we stamp it out completely. With regards to Mauritania, there the biggest issue is slavery by descent. That's right. It's not a well-known concept. And I think modern slavery has been, you know, in the news and um, talked about quite a lot in recent years. And people are familiar with some of those forms of modern slavery, you know, trafficking, exploitation, sexual exploitation, um, bonded labour, forced labour and so on. People are less aware that old fashioned traditional forms of slavery persist in parts of the world, including Mauritania and other parts of West Africa. And descent based slavery is where you're born into slavery. Because you were born to parents who are enslaved, you are from birth part of that caste of people who are enslaved and don't have the same uh, rights as other people um, in the country. So presumably then there are probably people today who as far back as they know, their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents just have always been in this situation. That's right. It's such an entrenched part of the local culture and practice that people are not aware, sometimes are not aware that this is not acceptable. Um, They're certainly not always aware that it's criminal. They probably have been enslaved as a family for generations and generations, but they don't always know because families as part of the system are quite often Uh, separated children are sent to work um, in other relatives houses other people's houses it's not always known um, exactly what the descent of individuals are other than the mother that gave birth to them who they're very often separated from so you know the individuals themselves are not necessarily aware of their, their heritage even 
And from what I've seen also, a lot of the women who are involved in this are subject to rape and sexual abuse. And oftentimes have children who are biologically the children of the slave owner. But then even though it's his biological kids, they become his slaves. That's absolutely correct. And I think this is very common in the forms of slavery that are much better documented in the, the, the Americas, for example. When you are the property of your master, you have no agency over any part of your life. And as a woman, you have no agency over your sexual independence. So quite often, women who are born into slavery are married to their masters. So we're in a society where men can take several wives. And even beyond the four wives that are permitted in Islam, you, they're able to take additional wives who have a different status or no status really. So that's often married in this way and or otherwise just forced to have a sexual relationship with their masters or are passed on to relatives, sons or, or, or other relatives or other family members as, as favours. Historically, obviously, Mauritania was kind of a nomadic society where I imagine it was easier for things like this to go on without people much noticing. But and over the last 20, 30 years, because of climate change and things, more people have shifted to the coast and the cities. Has that had an effect on this in any kind of positive way? That's a very interesting question. It's very hard to know for sure. And that's one of the challenges, the lack of really solid, verifiable information about slavery practices, uh, descent-based slavery practices and changes in those practices. So there are various things we do know. One thing is, as you say, there's the ethnic dimension really to the patterns of descent-based slavery in Mauritania. So the the majority of the population descended from sort of Berber, more people, but um, are divided into two kind of classes within that, the owner class and the slave class. The Berber people Emma referred to are the traditional inhabitants of the North African states of Morocco, Algeria and Tunisia. Mauritania lies just to the south of these nations and gets its name from an earlier country which once existed in territory that now belongs to Morocco. With the arrival of Islam, Arabs swept into North Africa and the lighter skinned descendants of Arabs and Berbers are the people known as White Moors in Mauritania. To the south, the Sahara Desert makes way for tropical rainforests, and the darker-skinned Africans who live in nations such as Senegal and Burkina Faso. In between, you have the Haritan people, who are colloquially referred to as the Dark Moors. They share some heritage with the so-called White Moors, but it's this group of people making up about 40% of the population who have traditionally been enslaved. So there's this sort of dimension, this ethnic dimension that that doesn't change as people travel around and there are still nomadic patterns um, in rural areas following grazing, living in encampments. I think that that has enabled the continuation of this practice because it's so hard to know what's going on where. We're talking about very, very isolated communities, and that still goes on today. So you talk about people moving more to the coast. That may well be happening, but there are still a lot of people living in very isolated communities, very mobile, as you say, very hard to trace where people are or what's happening to people. And that's the experience of our partner organisation in Mauritania. They're called SOS Esclave, and they've been working uh, with networks of activists in, in isolated areas all around Mauritania and the biggest challenge they face is identifying where 
people are still living in slavery and um, contacting them and giving them support, enabling them to you know, move towards a life of freedom. So to that point, then obviously it's difficult to kind of gauge the scale of it. But I saw a couple of years ago, the UN had one report estimated there was about 90,000 people possibly in slavery there. Does that figure seem pretty accurate based on your group's work? Yes. Yes, that, that's right. And that figure, you know, we don't know for sure, but that figure has been arrived at with estimates drawn from organisations such as our partner SOS with Glove, um, who are working in those communities, and they, they've been able to sort of calculate an estimate uh, for how many people would still be living in slavery. But of course, it's not just those who have not yet been liberated, it's also those survivors who are technically no longer in slavery but their lives still are similarly limited. There are ongoing slavery-like practices, which they find it hard to escape. So it's quite a grey area when it comes to counting. I mean, if somebody has been born into generational slavery, presumably they have little or no resources as far as like money, network, family support, education. If and when your organisation or others are able to help somebody escape from that, does the government or the society there as opposed to NGO groups, have anything in place to help these people essentially kind of start from scratch as a free citizen? Well, that's a difficult question to answer because on paper there are, that steps have been taken, but in reality they're not necessarily reaching the people who need the support. And one of the problems underlying this is a real reluctance by the government in Mauritania to admit that um, descent-based slavery is an ongoing practice. They, they, they have traditionally preferred to talk about it in terms of something that used to happen. And it's only really recently, in the last couple of years, and largely due to pressure from organisations like our partner SOS Escarva and ourselves, that they um, are now admitting, really, that there is this ongoing practice so they have introduced some initiatives, such as three courts, you know, with lawyers trained to take cases of slavery to support um, the sort of emancipation process of individuals, as well as some initiatives for providing economic, um, you know, support, vocational training and so on, um, small, small scale economic support. But every time these are actually put into practice, Quite often, the reference to targeting survivors of descent-based slavery are removed, so they become just general programs that don't target those individuals who really need that support because they're so reluctant to admit it's an ongoing problem. That's a challenge for our partners to keep on putting the pressure on, saying, "Well, are you reaching the people who need the support?" And also developing, you know, sort of models of how you can do this effectively, and looking at some of the barriers that survivors face. Many survivors don't have ID cards. They find it extremely difficult to get those ID cards, without which you can't access support services. You can't have a bank account, your children can't go to school. But to get those ID cards, you need to have a birth certificate, which most people born in slavery would not have. You need to be able to say both parents' names. Not all individuals can do that. So these are all barriers which uh, need to be sort of dismantled really by government, but they're not going to really do that with any great kind of commitment until they really accept um, it's an ongoing problem. The law has been tightened up since 2015. Courts have been created. It is technically possible to take a case to court to secure your freedom um, as long as 
you're aware of those rights and you've got support to go through that legal process. The reality is that those courts aren't working very well. Lots of cases don't come forward. They very often, often are not functioning, those courts. Just in the last year, the special rapporteur, the UN special rapporteur on, on slavery, visited Mauritania. One of the things that was reported to them was that some cases were not being heard because women who were bringing forward the cases were not married, so they weren't being accepted as being able to speak for themselves in court. So at a local level, this is the kind of thing which is frustrating that process. And then even without the legal procedures, the very fact that it is now illegal and that we've got groups of activists through organizations such as SOS Club going into communities and raising awareness that this practice is illegal and that individuals have rights and providing practical support for them to leave um, so you know emergency support for transport medical costs and you know help to locate family members that they can reunify with to build up a new network support network outside but the reality is many people who leave slavery don't have any options and I think that was probably the case when slavery ended in the Americas I'm not so familiar with those details but from what I understand very often people are staying in the same areas they're living close to their master their former masters they're dependent on them for work they don't have any other options for all the reasons that I've talked about lack of ID cards illiteracy and so they're still dependent and they still feel they can't say no when they're required to do things by their former masters. Women don't have the agency to refuse sexual demands from their former masters and they're still quite powerless. So it's only really through organisations of activists such as our partners, um, those sort of cycles of dependency and being trapped can be can be broken. I did see a UN report that said that there's a climate of denial about it. Is that a PR thing? They don't want to have a poor reputation for having slavery? Is it a bureaucratic thing where local officials don't know how to get past the fact somebody can't ID themselves? Or is it that people from that caste who keep slaves are also the people who are the judges and the policemen and they're not interested in addressing it because they're complicit? Absolutely. So wherever you have any form of slavery and descent-based slavery is no different here. It's happening because there are vested interests in it happening. There are people who don't want it to stop. There are people who are benefiting from it, who have benefited from it for generations, whose whole sort of social networks and social norms support this practice, normalise the practice. So that is one of the biggest challenges, changing that, shifting those social norms. And I think that for a long time, as you say, the government was um, in denial about the ongoing existence of descent-based slavery on the one hand to, to the public the international audiences in denial but knew it was going on. I think we are seeing now a slight shift there's been a new government since 2019 there have been some steps to even out the representation in government in senior positions bringing in some Harriton representatives where they hadn't existed before and as you say it was the the dominant sort of white more class that had all of the positions of power and the judiciary and police you know in the government so there are some shifts towards changing that and obviously this will be a very slow process but it, but that is quite groundbreaking that this is beginning to happen and the government is now publicly admitting that this is an ongoing problem it's an ongoing practice and that again is quite groundbreaking 
For many years, they tried to repress the organisations of activists and survivors, such as our partners, SOS Love. So they faced a lot of barriers in their work, a lot of actions to try and shut them down, you know, in terms of their power to speak out. And this has shifted a bit now, and civil society organisations are being uh, invited to work with government a bit more on this issue. And as I say, this, this represents a window of opportunity that we really need to seize and move forward with. Who knows how, how extensive this change will be or how long it will go on for. But I mean, that's why it's really important to support a movement, an anti-slavery movement locally, which is what Anti-Slavery International does. We support local movements uh, working against slavery in different contexts. Because without that movement there, firstly, you wouldn't, they wouldn't have had the pressure to um, admit to what's going on and to really take some proper steps to address it. But equally, there wouldn't be the people there to seize these opportunities as these, these windows open. And, you know, these windows always open and they often close again. So you have to be there and ready to seize those opportunities when they're there. I mean, my colleague in, the, in West Africa was just telling me today that the government in Mauritania is planning to conduct some awareness raising caravans which is sort of like you know trips out to very remote regions and going from place to place to raise awareness of the criminalization of descent-based slavery and to provide advice and support to survivors or people who want to be liberated who are still in descent-based slavery and they've, they've made these efforts in the past but done it in a very lip service kind of way this time they're actually inviting civil society organizations to go and join them in those caravans and that's never happened before so there are these little indicators that there is a bit of a window and that's largely come about as a result of the recent visit by the special rapporteur to Mauritania um, which we and our partners were very involved in preparing for and making sure that they asked the right questions and uh, spoke to the right people. Obviously your group and the SOS and others have been working hard on this issue for a long time. I was wondering about the international community, I mean, outside of the UN, but when you just kind of do a cursory research about Mauritania on the news, what pops up is that Joe Biden says Mauritania is a key ally in the fight against terrorism. And then you read that the Spanish government work in conjunction with Mauritania to stop immigration coming to Europe. So from the Western government point of view, do you think that they have a position to put a bit more leverage? Yes. There? They absolutely do. And I think that is what's happening. And I think the process that um, uh, the the special rapporteur's visit was part of, those governments are involved in that. And I would say, you know, those governments are also supporting civil society organisations. A lot of the the funding for the anti-slavery movement in Mauritania comes through different bits of the US government. So there is a commitment there to um, tackling descent-based slavery. That makes sense. Because, I mean, I can imagine that the kind of people who would be involved in human trafficking would probably be the similar kind of people who would think it's okay to keep slaves. I think that it's really important to remember this isn't just an issue on paper, it's about people, it's about individuals who are living in the most unimaginable isolation and lack of power, powerlessness. So we really need to, if we're going to get the support of, of, of people at all levels, including governments, it's really important to remember, you know, that lived experience and to ensure 
that those individuals are able to tell their own stories and are able to be part of this anti-slavery movement that's taking place in Mauritania. And that's what we're working to support. So my colleague um, was in Mauritania last week and uh, she was just telling me today about a woman that she met, a middle-aged woman that she met in a town called Atar, which is a provincial centre um, about a day's drive from the capital. And she is a survivor of descent-based slavery. So she was separated from her mother at a very young age and she was sent to, to work in a different family. And during that time, her mother actually fled her master. And so the woman that my colleague spoke to didn't hear about this for several months, didn't even know that her mother had disappeared and was and says that she cried a lot when she heard this because she had no idea where her mother had gone and any link, family link that she might have had was lost. And so through her childhood, she was just living with her master's family. She was keeping animals near the camp and doing household chores and she says she was the first to get out and the last to lie down. Even as a child she thought it would be important to learn to read so she went to the local religious leader the Marabou to get some classes in reading Um, and when her master found out she says that he threatened to slit her throat if she ever tried to do that again and she says that she never tried to learn again after that. But later on in life, she did locate where her mother was and and went to visit her in Atar town. She was given permission to visit her by her master as long as she returned. But then she was given support when she was in Atar. She was given support by our uh, partner organization, SOS Escar, by their activists to help free herself and not return to her master. And she was really afraid to take that step and was very reluctant at first. It took a lot of discussion and conversation about what would happen and what support she could she could get and how how she would do this and I think the fact her mother had already been liberated helped so since that time uh, she managed to get her civil status she got her ID card and she's got two daughters who are now 14 and 17 and she's trying to get their ID cards uh, which as I've described earlier on is very difficult if you don't have birth certificates don't know the father's name and so on but once they've got ID cards they'll be enrolling in school as well and so she's feeling quite hopeful about the future although the scars the the emotional scars of, of having had those experiences in early life are difficult to overcome quite apart from the practical challenges and and that's something which um, our partners activists can help with as well. That's a horrifying story so were her children were they with her in the household that she was at after um, I think they would have been. I think she would have. She would have visited. Um, I'm guessing from from the information I have. But if her daughters are 14 and 17, and she freed herself in 2011, then she must have come to visit her mother with her two young daughters at that time. Yes. And I think it's unlikely she would have been encouraged, persuaded to free herself had she not had her children with her. And this is something that keeps people from taking opportunities to free themselves because they're. They can't be sure that they'll be able to bring their children with them. They're sometimes not in the same houses, as was the case with this woman. And very often it's the first thing that survivors do is to go back and, and, and get their children. Yeah, that's what I think, because it's almost like your extended family are going to be held hostage. Kind of like, I suppose, you know, when people defect from North Korea or something, you would have that fear of what's going to happen to your family if I leave. Will they face, you know, ramifications for that? That's right. And those fears are very real. You know, they've, they've lived with that sort of um, intimidating and brutal and violent treatment all their lives. So those fears are real. 
this is one of the problems. I've already described how difficult it is to take cases to court, even though these three new courts have been set up. There are all sorts of obstacles to taking the cases to court. And even where those cases are heard and even where they are successful, then the consequences for the perpetrators are very slight. Sentencing very often doesn't happen for a long time after the judgment and then can be very light um, and can be um, suspended sentences and so on. The first big case after the law changed in 2015 and these um, courts were set up, it's a big, quite high profile case, which was really good for raising kind of awareness across the country of this ongoing issue. The two survivors spoke very movingly um, about their experience and they really challenged their former masters in court um, who were denying that they had held them in slavery. And they won the case. It was a real breakthrough for that case uh, to go to court, to be heard, to get the publicity it got, and then to win. But the reality is that the perpetrators, who were 75 and 31, they both received five-year prison sentence each, with one year to be served and four years suspended. So that's very little, really. They were ordered to pay significant compensation, so sometimes the compensation can make a big difference to survivors' lives actually going forward. But essentially, prosecution is very, very weak. I mean, so essentially, it's almost as if they were convicted for drunk driving or something based on the type of punishment they got, even though they destroyed these people's lives. Yes. That's crazy. Dire as the situation is for tens of thousands in Mauritania, Tragically, it's just the tip of a global iceberg. But thankfully, groups such as Emma's are working diligently with the support of ordinary people to try and bring an end to this abhorrent trade. You can learn more about the situation in Mauritania, find resources and raise awareness and help directly if you go to the website antislavery.org. I chose to focus on Mauritania in this episode due to the scale of the problem there and the lack of coverage on the issue in the Western media. But horrifically, there are other instances of slavery and bondage all around us. So I strongly encourage you to visit the website, antislavery.org, so that our unwitting ignorance of the problem cannot be an impediment to liberating our fellow human beings. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.